0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. The case I'm covering in this episode was suggested by a listener of the show. This listener, who prefers to remain anonymous, also sat on the jury for the trial that resulted after this disturbing murder. She and I talked about the case for over an hour, and she was able to provide a lot of interesting insight from a juror's perspective. It's clear the trial had a lasting effect on her, even decades later. You'll hear from the juror throughout this episode. This case is brutal, and the aftermath would pit two families against each other for decades. Kellyanne Tinez was a tall and athletic 13-year-old girl. She stood about 5'9". Kellyanne lived in a working-class, family-friendly neighborhood with her parents, Richard and Victoria, and her younger brother, Richie Jr. The Tinez family lived in Valley Stream, New York, which is a village in Nassau County. The Tinez family home was located on Horton Road, where houses were close together and children were always outside playing. The people who lived on Horton Road were pretty tight-knit. Everybody knew everybody. It was, by all means, a safe and happy neighborhood, almost like a family. It was the type of place where people never moved away. After all, Richard Tinez had lived in the Horton Road house since he was five years old. Kellyanne, with her long brown hair and blue eyes, had many friends in school and was one of the favorite babysitters in the neighborhood. She was a happy and kind teenage girl with her whole life ahead of her, looking forward to high school, new friends, and even college in the not-too-distant future. Unfortunately, Kellyanne would never get to experience these things. It was March 3rd of 1989, just two days before Kellyanne's 14th birthday. Family and friends were excited to throw her a surprise party the day before her birthday. Following an ordinary school day, Kellyanne was at home watching over her younger brother when she received a phone call from one of her neighbors, asking her to come over. The call was coming from the Golub family residence, which was located five houses down from the Tinyas home. Kellyanne's younger brother, Richie, remembers answering the phone and the call coming from John Golub, who was Kellyanne's age. Richie recalled John plainly saying, quote, Get Kelly, and then he handed the phone to his sister. The phone call occurred around 3.15 p.m., according to Richie. The Golub family consisted of Mr. and Mrs. Golub and their three children, Adele, Robert, and John. The Golub family moved to Horton Road in 1967 when their eldest child Adele was just two years old. Although the neighborhood as a whole was very close-knit, the Golubs could be described as quirky and they tended to stay to themselves. When they weren't working or at school, They spent much of their time at a yacht club where they had a boat. At the time Kellyanne got the phone call from John, Robert Golub was 21 years old and John was 14. Kellyanne was not really close with the Golub boys and knew her parents would not approve of her going to hang out with John Golub. So she lied and said she was going to a different friend's house. It was later theorized that Kellyanne went to the Golub house to get some weed but that theory has not been substantiated. Not only did the Gollubs stay out of social circles, their children seemed to be trouble, and their house was described as very unkempt. It was one of the few houses in the neighborhood where parents would not let their kids go. According to another teenager in the neighborhood, the Golub boys and two other 14-year-old boys were at the Golub house the day Kelly Ann was contacted to come over. The other two boys claimed to have gone home from school with 14-year-old John Golub to hang out and smoke some weed. Kellyanne, assuming she was just going to hang out with some friends, walked five houses down Horton Road to the Golub house. Unknown to her, it would be the last time Kellyanne would ever walk down her street again. Later that day, Kellyanne's parents arrived home from work and Kellyanne was still not home. At that point, it wasn't anything to worry about. Kellyanne had many friends in the area, and it was a very safe neighborhood, after all. Later that night, when Kellyanne was still not home and had not contacted her parents, they went to some of the neighbors' houses to see if she was there. After learning that John Golub had called her, Mr. and Mrs. tinyes checked his house as well. 21-year-old Robert Golub was sleeping when they arrived, and John and Mrs. Golub both denied that Kellyanne had ever been at the house that day. At this time, panic started to set in. No one had seen or heard from Kellyanne since earlier that day. Her parents then contacted police and filed a missing persons report. Although very worried about their daughter, everyone at first assumed that Kellyanne had disappeared on her own accord. She had mentioned to a friend sometime before that she was planning on running away After all, this is not completely unusual for teenagers. Early the next morning, police came to Horton Road to search the area and ask residents questions about Kellyanne. Elizabeth Golub, who was known to wear the same clothes for days in a row and always looking a bit out of order, seemed in especially bad shape on this day. She took her younger son, John, around to other neighbors' houses during this time demanding to know what they saw involving Kellyanne. She also woke up her oldest son, Robert, who also denied seeing Kellyanne that day. After being woken up by his mother, Robert then left the house. While Elizabeth Golub was questioning neighbors, police officers ran into her and asked if they could check her house. Before providing a response, Elizabeth contacted her husband who told her not to let the police search their home until he got home from work. Upon arriving home, Mr. Golub walked police through the house, eventually leading them down into the basement. Within minutes of reaching the basement, police found the body of Kelly Ann Tinez. They immediately closed off the scene and called in the medical examiner. It was this day the seemingly perfect neighborhood on Horton Road changed forever.
0: Ross Police in Nassau County are now guarding the house where a Long Island teenager was found murdered. It's the home of two prime suspects in the death of Kelly Tinez. And yesterday, it was the scene of an angry confrontation. Let's go live to Tim Fleischer in Valley Stream for the latest. Tim. John, with a police command post just right outside their front door, perhaps John Golub, his wife, and two sons felt they could freely come and go from their home here in Valley Stream. This very same home where they found the body of 14-year-old Kelly Antinius two weeks ago. But yesterday, the Golubs met an angry crowd that left them little doubt as to how some people feel about this murder. Family members of Kelly Antinius first confronted Robert Golub here at this Hewlett supermarket where Golub reportedly claimed, I'm innocent, I didn't do it. By the time police were able to get Robert Golub out of this supermarket, the crowd had grown even larger and started moving back over to Horton Road, just outside the Golub home. Here, police again had to stand guard, as they did today. When the Golubs carried suitcases out to their car, they were met by angry shouts and screams. Dorothy Collins, who lives across the street from Richard and Vicki Tinius, told me she saw it all.
2: Yes, we were upset. Mm-hmm. We went back on the like I said, Vicky and Richie get very upset and we all get very upset.
0: And some neighbors believe what only adds to this tragedy is that after two full weeks, an arrest has not been made in the case.
3: We're all upset about Kelly. We all know her. Mm-hmm. This sweet girl. It's heartbreaking what happened. I feel for her parents.
0: And not seeing an arrest, at least. At the I'm not
3: point. seeing something happen. It's two well, over
2: two weeks and nothing happened yet.
1: Kellyanne's fragile, lifeless body had been found hidden inside a small storage space in the basement under the stairs. She was wrapped up inside of a sleeping bag. The space was full of trash and rot, which along with the body accounted for a strong and unpleasant smell. Police could have never been prepared for what they were about to see. Kellyanne had been sexually mutilated, her throat was slit, her torso had been slashed open, and there was a horrendous cut going from her vagina to her anus. There was also a bite mark found on her buttocks. Inside of the sleeping bag, alongside Kellyanne's body, police found a 19-inch bayonet. A bayonet is a type of blade that's usually attached to a rifle and used to stab an opponent in close combat. Kellyanne had been strangled, and a bloody palm print was found on her naked body. Blood spatter was found around the scene. This was a brutal and personal slaying, done by somebody who seemed to be filled with rage. Given the brutality of the attack, it was theorized that Kellyanne's killer had a personal vendetta against her. The reason behind the vendetta was unknown.
3: One of the things they described to us, that she was sliced from her vagina to her (sighs) anus. That he had sex with her after she was dead. Wow. And... The telling thing that I think stinched it for the jury, aside from the multitude of DNA evidence, was the bite mark on her butt.
1: The autopsy report showed no defensive wounds, which is somewhat odd for a tall and athletic girl like Kellyanne. To many people, the lack of defensive wounds on Kellyanne's body hinted that there might have been more than one attacker, or that her killer must have caught her off guard with a surprise attack. It seemed that Kellyanne's death was from blunt force trauma or strangulation. All of the brutal cuts and mutilation to her body was just extra, as if her killer was in a fit of rage, inflicting these wounds on an unconscious girl. It had only been a day since Kellyanne had entered the Gullop household, never to be seen alive again. It was the day of her surprise party and the day before she would be turning 14. Horton Road was quiet and somber that day, as would be expected. No children were outside playing, and no parents were socializing, as the police carried a body bag out of the Golub home. While most of the neighborhood was shocked and grieving, most of all Kellyanne's family, the Golub's were afraid. A little girl's body had just been found hidden inside of their house. The story was making news headlines all across the country, putting tremendous pressure and stress on the Golub family. According to sources, the Golub's began to prepare a story right away. John Golub, the youngest child, and the one who called Kellyanne that day, claimed that he and his friends had been playing video games in the living room and that no one entered the house during that time. He also said they went to play basketball afterward. It was odd that he claimed not to know anything about Kellyanne being in his house, given that Kellyanne's little brother Richie claimed that John had been the one to call her over that day. Robert Golub told police that John asked him and the other boys who were over that day to tell police they were playing video games. It is reported that after the body was found, John Gullah visited his friend's house to talk. Upon finding out his friend had already been taken in for questioning, John yelled out, quote, tell them we were playing Nintendo in hopes his friend was still around and could hear him. Witnesses reported that John was extremely nervous and shaken up. If he had nothing to do with the murder and no knowledge of it, Why would he be nervous? As for the Tinya's family, they were having a very hard time. They had just lost Kellyanne and in such a horrific way. Although stricken with grief, they wanted answers and they wanted the person or the people involved to be punished. It seemed obvious that whoever killed Kellyanne was inside the Golub household on the day Kellyanne came to visit. The police interviewed the two Golub boys as well as the two friends who were at the house, and they all passed lie detectors tests with, quote, "flying colors," as the police sergeant put it. The Horton Road neighborhood was vastly different than it had been before the murder. The once active neighborhood was now dark and dreary. and the Gollup house, it could have been on a different planet. Nobody in the neighborhood would go near it. The Gollubbs were already considered outsiders in the neighborhood that seclusion only intensified after Kellyanne's murder. A six-year-old girl from the neighborhood reported seeing something odd the day Kellyanne went missing. The young girl, named Jacqueline DeLuca, claimed to have seen Kellyanne being assaulted through the Golub's basement window. She claimed to see more than one person assaulting the young girl. Jacqueline's grandmother remembers her coming home that day and seeming very odd and distressed about something. This was before anyone knew Kellyanne was missing. After Kellyanne's murder, Jacqueline went through an awful time for years. According to her, she had trouble sleeping, dealt with depression, and went to therapy for years after. The police interviewed Jacqueline and listened to what she had to say. In the police interview, Jacqueline was more descriptive, claiming she saw Kellyanne's hair being ripped out. She also drew pictures of the scene for police. Police believed Jacqueline at first. However, they discredited the information altogether later on due to the fact that she was so young and other children claimed she was not around the Gullah residence that day. When asked about what she saw many years later, at the age of 15, Jacqueline said, quote, "'I looked in. I saw things going on. I know what I saw. It seemed like everyone on the street had a story.'" Many children had seen Kellyanne walk into the Golub residence that day, and many had been so traumatized from the tragedy that they attended counseling. One young girl who lived across from the Golub house saw Kellyanne enter the Golub house and reportedly saw Robert Golub answer the door. She was so grief-stricken after the murder, she refused to talk about it for quite some time afterward. The blinds in her house, which faced the Golub home, needed to be closed at all times. Practically every family on Horton Road was affected in one way or another. Kellyanne's murder hit the neighborhood hard. While searching the Golub house, many police officers described the scene as a mess. The house was full of clutter and trash, so much so, it hampered their investigation at times. The Golubs were hoarders.
3: It was a mess. They had garbage in the bathtub. Mm. like cans and bottles, and i none of us knew how they could travel but we saw pictures of it, and that was the difficulty in them getting evidence because it was a mess. Oh, my and gosh. It was very hard, with all that trash everywhere and the disarray in the house.
1: Also in the basement, police found a briefcase full of clothes Kellyanne was wearing the day she disappeared, as well as a large T-shirt stained with blood and semen. The shirt had an Ocean Pacific logo, and it was believed to have belonged to Robert Golub. However, after investigating further, police believed the semen stains did not have anything to do with the murder, and the shirt could have been thrown downstairs a while before the murder. For this reason, the OP t-shirt evidence would not end up being used in the case. Mr. Golub claimed to have picked up John from playing basketball, after ending his job at the gas station he owned. Mr. Golub said he arrived home around 5 p.m. Mrs. Golub returned home shortly after. Neither reported seeing Kellyanne that day. It is unclear whether Mr. and Mrs. Golub knew about the body in their house. The way Mrs. Golub acted that morning did make many people suspicious, believing she may have known something and wanted to cover it up. And Mr. Golub's claim, that he picked John up after work didn't jive with Richie's statement that John was the one who called Kellyanne to come over around 3.15 in the afternoon. 21-year-old Robert Golub was considered a primary suspect in the murder since day one. Robert was a short yet bulky guy who was shy and usually kept to himself. Being only 5'3", he weighed 170 pounds of pure muscle. Robert spent much of his time working out, and could bench press 310 pounds. He went to the gym every day and took steroids, which are known to cause mood swings and acts of aggression. He took working out very seriously, even entering bodybuilding competitions. After graduating high school, Robert didn't do much with his life besides partying and working out. Although a little secluded, Robert seemed like a normal, clean-cut guy. He had no reported criminal record. On the night Kellyanne's body was found, Robert was questioned for 18 hours. During these interviews, Robert shared a lot of information about himself, such as the fact that he was a member of the National Rifle Association. Knowing that a bayonet was found alongside Kellyanne's body, this bit of information was eerie. Robert also told police that he once shot the neighbor's dog in the face with a BB gun because it was keeping him awake. Shooting an animal in the face is outside the norm with respect to human behavior and could easily give the impression that Robert was comfortable inflicting acts of violence on others. Robert also told police he really looks up to his younger brother, John. Robert was always shy and didn't have many friends. John, on the other hand, was the complete opposite. Police found this statement odd because usually it's the younger sibling who looks up to the older one Robert claimed not to have known Kellyanne, but knew that she and his brother were, quote, an item. There was no proof to confirm this, however. Robert just said he could see it in their eyes and that the two would call each other often. Kellyanne's parents deny that she had any connection with John Golub. The police also asked Robert some questions directly involving the murder. Sometime after the murder, Police realized that Robert had some small cuts on his right hand. When asked how he got these, Robert explained that it happened while weightlifting. He later changed his story, saying he may have cut himself while working with sheet metal, only to say later that he had never worked with sheet metal before. When asked where he was at the time Kellyanne came to the house and was murdered, Robert claimed he left the house once to buy a muscle magazine. He claims to have come back home and watched TV until around 3 p.m., which was about 15 minutes before Kellyanne supposedly arrived at the house. He claims his brother skipped school that day and he had friends over to smoke weed. This statement conflicted with his father's claim that he picked John up from basketball after he left work. Robert said he fell asleep watching TV at the time it was claimed that Kellyanne arrived at the Gollum home and was murdered. He claimed his younger brother woke him up around 6.30 p.m., telling him a girl was on the phone for him, but Robert said he didn't take the call. Instead, he claims he ate dinner, went out with a friend to smoke, and didn't arrive home until about 11.30 that night. According to Robert during these interviews, he had been asleep and had not even known Kellyanne had come to the house, let alone that she was murdered there. Mr. Golub claimed he picked John up from basketball sometime after 5 p.m. when he left work. Mrs. Golub says she arrived home shortly after and didn't see Kellyanne at the house. John Golub says he and his friends were at home playing video games and never noticed Kellyanne in the house. A neighbor said she saw John Golub answer the door when Kellyanne arrived. And Richie Tinya's claimed that John Golub is the one who called Kellyanne to come over around 3.15 p.m. And finally, you have Robert Golub, who says he was sleeping at the time it was claimed that Kellyanne arrived, and then he left the house. Somebody was lying. Or could it be that the entire Golub family was covering up the truth? After Kellyanne's murder, John Golub was sent to boarding school. He was not really seen as a suspect by police or very involved in the investigation, much to many people's shock and dismay. This was simply due to the lack of evidence. Police didn't have much to go on to point any blame on John. It does seem clear that John was the one to call Kellyanne and invite her over that day, and he had a closer connection to Kellyanne than Robert did, because he was her age. Even if he and his friends had nothing to do with the murder, many people believe he would have at least heard a commotion or sensed that something was wrong during or after Kellyanne's murder. That said, John claimed that he and his friends were playing music loudly that day, and this could have been the reason he didn't hear a commotion. The way John acted after the body was found, however, didn't do much to help his claims of innocence. His alleged attempts to try to get a story straight about playing video games was definitely suspicious. Around three weeks after Kellyanne's body was found, police arrested Robert Golub. Police claimed that all of the blood and other evidence at the scene pointed directly at Robert. At that time, nobody else was seen as a suspect in Kellyanne's murder. The recently quiet Horton Road was full of energy once again, as police escorted Robert Golub from his house in handcuffs. Cameras and reporters crowded the streets along with looky Lou neighbors. Both the Tinez family and the Golub family were feeling so many emotions at this time. This could finally mean justice for Kellyanne, but at the same time, the Gullab family was now losing one of their children. The neighbors were shocked, some even defending Robert, thinking he was not capable of doing something so horrendous. When asked if he was guilty, Robert softly muttered, quote, no comment. In court, Robert pleaded not guilty, and he was sent to the county jail without bail. The selected jury was a diverse mix of age, gender, and backgrounds. The youngest juror was in his early 20s, and some of the older jurors were retired and in their 50s or 60s. The youngest juror, only in his 20s, was chosen as the jury foreman simply because he was the first juror selected for the trial. As with all murder cases, the mood inside the courtroom was emotional. But this trial in particular Given the heinous nature of the crime and the age of the victim was especially intense. The Tinya’s family and those close to Kellyanne were understandably stricken with grief and anger. At times during trial, Kellyanne's supporters would have loud outbursts of emotion. The family would yell at Robert or cry out when pictures or certain evidence were shown. The Golub family, on the other hand, remained fairly quiet throughout the trial. It's uncertain whether they believed in their son's innocence, but they were there for him every step of the way. According to the juror I spoke with, the Gullubs seemed nervous throughout the trial. Their son was on trial for murder, and all of their neighbors and peers were now judging them. It was emotional for everyone in that courtroom, including the jurors and lawyers. Having to see pictures of Kellyanne's mutilated body was taking its toll on everyone, The defendant kept his head down during most of the trial, only looking up during the time the jury was selected. He did not take the stand.
3: It was very disturbing. I mean, this is, uh, you know, they were sitting 10, 15 feet away from the jury box. Right. And you see these tears and devastation.
1: So the Golub family, were were there any outbursts on their part or were they
3: pretty quiet? No, I I think they were very nervous. Hmm. never heard I'd never heard anything it was all the Tinya’s family yelling at Robert
1: on first analysis of the bloody palm print found on Kellyanne's body it reportedly did not belong to Robert or any of the Gullabs however after being tested a second time and this time by the FBI the palm print did come back as belonging to Robert Gullab one of the most telling pieces of evidence was the bite mark found on Kellyanne's buttock According to the juror, police took samples of Robert Gullib's teeth marks, and they matched perfectly with the bite mark. This fact, according to the juror, cemented in their minds that Robert must have been the one who murdered Kellyanne. Each person's bite mark is specific only to them. Like a fingerprint, the evidence was damning. Although DNA evidence was fairly new at the time, there was a good amount of blood found at the scene. The blood spatter analysts at trial made a solid case that the blood belonged to nobody else but Robert Golub. The cuts on Robert's hand also gave jurors some suspicion, believing they may have occurred during the attack on Kellyanne. The evidence was stacking up against Robert Golub and the jury was taking note. The defense attorney at trial tried refuting the DNA evidence found on the scene. He also pointed out that Robert did not have any friendship or connection to Kellyanne, and therefore, no motive to kill her. Robert's defense attorney did his best to plant reasonable doubt inside the mind of the jury, but defending Robert was an uphill battle. Love is patient. Love is kind. But sometimes, love can be deadly. Many couples may look happy, but we don't always know what happens behind closed doors. Every week, the Parcast Network's new podcast, Crimes of Passion, looks into what happens when love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion analyzes the relationship dynamics and psychology that lead to betrayal, crimes, and even murder. New episodes of Crimes of Passion come out every Wednesday. You can listen to the first episode on Wilma Hoyt right now, and look for upcoming episodes on Amy Fisher and Joey Buttafuoco, Lorena Bobbitt, and Jody Arias. Search for and subscribe to Crimes of Passion wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, search Crimes of Passion or visit parcast.com passion to listen now. Attorneys on both sides of the case called to the stand numerous scientists and crime scene analysts to try and get their points across. With DNA evidence being at center stage, jurors sat through hours of scientific testimony. The juror I spoke with explained that scientists did a very good job of showing where the blood was and painting a clear picture regarding how it got there. They did this in a manner in which people with no knowledge of DNA could understand.
3: One in, I don't know, a million, that the the DNA that was found there would be somebody else versus Robert.
1: DNA was still relatively new, I would imagine, at that
3: time. So
1: what type of DNA, if you can recall, and where was that DNA
3: found? There was some DNA. I think there was, I'm trying to remember, I think it might have been on, I don't know, some Blood on a suitcase or somewhere. Was it the palm print or that no? Found. That I don't recall. Okay. But somehow when they and they, they went through hours, like a full day, of these scientists explaining, you know, the DNA process and you know all the different DNA markers and how they have to line up and so on. But you know the way they described it, the end point of the whole day of DNA description was driving the point that the DNA couldn't possibly have come from anybody else based upon all the markers that were consistent.
1: When the jury began deliberating, they all agreed early on that Robert Golub was guilty of murdering Kellyanne. The DNA evidence was overwhelming. The only real question was to which degree of murder they should convict him. Knowing they had a man's life in their hands... Jurors decided to take a night to sleep on it and get together to discuss it in the morning. It didn't take long for jurors to decide Robert's fate. In April of 1990, after two months of trial, Robert Golub was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. The judge claimed that Kellyanne's brutal murder was the worst case he had presided over in his entire career. After the verdict was read, The mood inside the courtroom turned to anger and sadness. Some people in the courtroom were yelling at Robert and his family, calling them killers, and others could not do anything but cry. It was an intensely emotional moment for everyone. Although Robert was convicted, Kellyanne's parents, along with many others, think there were other people involved, and they vowed not to stop fighting until everyone who was involved is behind bars many theories have been floated as to what happened on the day Kellyanne was murdered. A popular theory among the residents of the Horton Road neighborhood, as well as members of law enforcement, was that Kellyanne came to the house to see John Golub and possibly smoke some weed with him and his friends. Another theory, and one the jurors believed, is that Robert Golub may have come on to Kellyanne and became angry after she rejected him. After all, Kellyanne was a pretty girl, and Robert, who was full of steroids and testosterone, might have gotten so angry that he brutally attacked her.
3: came to the door, and he, I guess, was trying to come on to her. And this is, you know, of course, all the, you know, the police theory and, you know, through the court case, what the theory was. Sure. And she rebuffed him, and he was on steroids, but we learned that after the case. They gotcha. didn't mention that during the trial, but the, the judge told us, you know, things that we could not be privy to that might influence our thoughts or prejudice us against, you know, Robert, that he was, it was probably an act of roid rage. He was very uh, into exercise and going to the gym, building himself up. So this was the theory that it was a roid rage kind of situation. So when she rebuffed him, I guess he pulled her into the house and, you know, all of the rest ensued. And he always figured that this would be <clears throat> a lot of commotion, a lot of noise. Maybe she was screaming, but apparently the music was so loud upstairs that Stunkey didn't even know she was there.
1: Another theory was that Robert did not work alone. This was a brutal slaying that would have made a big mess. There were also other people in the house at the time of the murder. Even if those people didn't play a part in the actual murder it would make sense that they may have helped to clean up the scene. It would have been a difficult task for just one person to take on. Perhaps John Golub knew ahead of time what his brother had done, and maybe Mr. and Mrs. Golub knew and tried keeping it a secret to protect their son. These thoughts were running through the minds of police and the residents of Horton Road, but they may never get those answers. Robert Golub, now in his early 50s, Has been an honorable prisoner, even participating in prison programs. Up until recently, he had maintained his innocence. Decades later, his story has changed. Robert now claims that he did kill Kellyanne, but that it was an accident and not murder. Robert claims Kellyanne was coming up the stairs when he ran into her, knocking her down the stairs, killing her. He was so scared of getting caught that he had to hide the body. Nobody really believed this story, and figured Robert was only trying to get out of prison. His story did not explain the mutilation to Kellyanne's body, and overall was just not believable. Robert came up for parole in 2017, but was denied due to the horrendous nature of his crimes. He will be eligible for parole again in 2019. The juror I spoke with strongly believes that Robert will never see freedom again. Kellyanne's father, Richard Tinez, is angered by the fact that Robert even has the option to be paroled. He wants to see Robert sit inside of a prison cell for the rest of his life. Mr. Tinez even launched an online petition to keep Robert behind bars. His petition got over 4,000 signatures. Mr. Tinez said, quote, He doesn't deserve to ever get out for what he did to my daughter. If we had the electric chair, I would pull the switch.
2: Who would have she married? How many grandchildren? Kelly Antinyes would now be 42 years old had the 8th grader not been lured to a neighbor's house in Valley Stream, strangled and savagely mutilated. For her parents, who still live doors away, it's time to relive the horror. He's just an evil
3: person. who should never be on the streets. He will kill again. He
2: must remain in jail for the rest of his life. What he did to Kelly is beyond comprehension. On Friday, Vicky and Richard Tinyas. Will urge the New York State parole board to keep Robert Golub behind bars. At the time of the shocking 1989 murder, the 21-year-old bodybuilder professed his innocence, only recently admitting guilt. The killing he now says was unintentional. He dragged and beat her in a panic. She was coming up the stairs. I ran into her, knocked back off the stairs. I panicked and tried to conceal what I did. Twice, the parole board has found his story questionable and turned him down. Down. private investigator Steve Fredrickson has interviewed Golub in prison and says he's even gone back on that story. He
3: basically said he had to show remorse. If he didn't show remorse, he'd never get out. And During the conversation he maintained his
2: innocence. The murder even puzzles Golub's trial attorney who says there are a lot of unanswered questions in this case and only Robert Golub has the answers. The Tiniez's have never given up on the notion that Golub's younger brother, also in the house but never charged, has some of those answers.
1: Not only are the Tinez family fighting to keep Robert behind bars, they believe John Golub got away with murder. John is the one who called Kellyanne over to the house, and the Tinias family cannot forget how strange he acted after Kellyanne's body was found. That, along with the young neighbor's eyewitness account of seeing more than one person assaulting Kellyanne, cast some suspicion on John. At some point after the trial, a new district attorney began re-examining the case and looking further into John's potential involvement. However, There simply was not enough evidence to reopen the case. As of now, it doesn't seem like charges will ever be brought against John, who would be in his 40s today. Horton Road has never been the same. People keep to themselves and don't roam the streets freely like they used to. Oddly enough, all the trauma aside, not one family moved from the street for years after the trial concluded. This includes both the Tenyes and the Golub family who still lived five houses down from each other for many years. Tensions ran very high, and the families were in a constant feud, which split the neighborhood in two. The Tinyas family felt the Golubs should be the ones to move, and vice versa. The Golubs were constantly hounded by the media, called names, and yelled at whenever they would leave their house. This caused even more of a buildup of tension between the families. The families were featured in the Long Island newspapers on multiple occasions due to this feud. There was one instance where Mrs. Golub reportedly backed her car into one of the tinya's cars. On another occasion, Mr. Tinez reported that Mr. Golub would give Mrs. Tinez the finger whenever they would cross paths. There were times when the families were outside yelling at each other in the streets. Lawsuits were filed and police had to be called numerous times to calm the two families down. It became a regular occurrence to read about the Tenyes and the Golub family feud in the press. It's understandable that the Tenyes family would direct their anger at the Golubs, but why on earth would the Golubs have any reason to attack the victim's family? Perhaps the Golubs had been harassed so much that they had been pushed to their limit and decided to fight back. The residents on Horton Road went so far as to issue a news release formally asking the Gollubs to leave, but the family would not budge. After all that has happened and practically everyone shunning the Golub family, it is odd that they would continue living on Horton Road. Harassment aside, it seems even more odd that they would want to continue living in a house where a young girl was brutally murdered and by their child at that. Even so, these families continued being close proximity neighbors for years after Kellyanne was murdered. According to Richard Tinez, he and his family would have moved much sooner if they had the means to do so. The family has struggled both mentally and physically and could just not afford to move.
3: To into one of the Tignes cars or yelling in the streets, them calling the police, it was kind of seemed like a regular thing. And, of course, everyone was trying to get the gollups to sell their house and leave the blocks. But they, they didn't. Wow. Not for many years, anyway. I
1: mean, I can't even imagine so, the I mean, gall of them to torture the victim's family even further. I just kind of like,
3: how dare you,
1: is my reaction.
3: Well, that's, that was exactly the thought. I mean, why would you want to stay on a block where everybody hates you?
1: Eventually, 20 years after the trial, And after constant fighting with the Tinez family, the Gullubs finally decided to move. Neighbors watched the family pack up and move away, giving a little sense of relief back to the neighborhood. In 2014, true crime author Ronald J. Watkins wrote a book about Kellyanne's case called Against Her Will, The Senseless Murder of Kellyanne Tinez. Watkins' book goes into a lot of detail about the case and the aftermath. Kellyanne's murder affected so many people. The entire state of New York knew about this case, and probably most of the country at the time it happened. The juror says it's one of the most memorable parts of her life, but not in a good way. All of the awful things she saw and heard in the courtroom, and the press trying to get something out of her after the fact, definitely took a toll on her.
3: The way they can find out who you are, you're going to be nine... (laughs) if you nine cars the park and they take the license plate and they can run the license plate and find out your identity gotcha. and that's what they did I mean I had my car so I really didn't have a choice about that so after the trial they were, I had a few phone calls and somebody actually knocked you know on my door and you know I had no interest in talking about the case to anybody mm-hmm. but of course when I went back to work of course everybody was you know what about this what about that that kind of stuff People always ask you questions.
1: Yeah, people are just generally... That was the
3: only contact that I had
1: with the media. Okay, and gosh, how alarming it must have been for you to get a knock on your door when it was so fresh, first of all, and such just such a heinous case, and you were probably still exhausted from the whole experience.
3: You know, around Toronto, when you say um, you were on the Gallup case, people were like, oh my gosh. Oh, they, so they all know, know about it, it I'm it was sure. It's such a big... Especially in Nassau County, it's such a, a huge, well-known case that you know, people, of course, always want to ask you questions. Oh yeah, and I'm um, sure that and, you'll yeah, always I, get that. Yes, yeah, but uh, you know, of course, I'll never forget it because it's such a big chunk of two months of your life. You know, you, you, know, you think about it, and it's, it just coincidentally, dissociations, Of course, you know, pie. Something positive happened to me, but also this girl was losing her life on that day.
1: Every year on March 5th, Kellyanne's birthday, most of the Horton Road neighbors come together to remember the young girl whose life was taken much too soon. Mrs. Tinez even decorates the house with balloons and gets a cake. The neighbors come together and sing happy birthday to Kellyanne. Although Kellyanne is gone, her loved ones will see to it that she is never forgotten. Thanks so much for joining me on another episode of Murderish. If you'd like to discuss this case, head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group. If you haven't joined the group yet, what are you waiting for? You can also chat with me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. If you like the show, do me a big favor and hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app and tell a friend about Murderish. I'd also love it if you leave the show a positive rating and review in iTunes. Also, stick around at the very end of this episode to hear a promo for Dark Poutine Podcast hosted by my buddies, Mike and Scott. Interested in extra murderish perks? Go to patreon.com murderish where your monthly support could give you access to Patreon-exclusive bonus content as well as other Patreon perks including murderish t-shirts, stickers, a shout-out on the podcast, Discount codes at the merch store and other cool stuff. Want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish? Check out my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other stuff available. Email any comments or questions you have to murderishjamie@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's murderishjami at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by murderish researcher Kennedy Caldwell. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this show doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.
0: is Mike Brown, creator and host of the Dark Poutine podcast. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hello, Scott. (sighs) (laughs) Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. We're two ordinary Canadians who chat mostly about true crime in Canada and our dark history. Subscribe to Dark Poutine through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. And join us weekly to get your fill of routine.